Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. The number of youngsters in King County went down after going up and up and up for 40 years. We don't know whether that's a trend, but why might fewer kids be in greater Seattle? We're going to discuss that and other news of the week, because that's our brief on this show. We have with me Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Speaker and author of the forthcoming book, Authentic, Jody Ann Burry. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Bury. Bury like Not fury. Bury. I knew that. <laughs> Bury like fury. I'm glad to have you here. KVI radio host, John Carlson. Welcome back, John. See you again. Yeah, been a while. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming on. And when I say see you, our listeners can see us if they just go to YouTube and search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, our first nice nice little hello <laughs> from Bury Lake Fury. Um, we are going to start with a couple of things that Americans don't tend to like: gun regulation and government surveillance. And those things came together this week. The city of Seattle took testimony on a proposed surveillance system that includes an acoustic gunshot locator and closed circuit cameras. And the testimony about this at City Hall was strongly opposed. Quote, 89% of shot spotters reports led police to find no gun-related crime, and 86% turned up no crime at all, amounting to about 40,000 dead-end shot spotter deployments, end quote. They do not reduce gun violence and do not get victims to safety quicker, again, as shown by research. So these are not treating the actual problems. It feels like instead of addressing these issues, we've instead addressed everyone as a potential criminal and now are watching them every move. However, the mayor of Seattle, Bruce Harrell, told KUOW last fall that this surveillance could solve a problem. Every time there is a shooting, the first thing that people ask, did we catch it on camera? Who, who, who was the shooter? Why did it occur? Where did they go after? And I have our police department doing a very manually intensive exercise by which they're gathering evidence and then they're trying to retrieve private footage and at some point this i think policy leaders would have to say what should we try differently particularly if it happens happening in your neighborhood so this notion that communities of color oppose it i've talked to you know i've lived in 98118 and 98144 most of my life and so when i talk to these leaders in these communities they embrace this pilot because they know i am trying to protect their communities They get it. And finally, Harold says this is a pilot that he's going to end unless he can answer yes to these questions. Am I getting accurate bullet information in terms of where people are shooting? Am I able to retrieve uh, casings on a timely basis? Did the the technology actually provide me good intel? Um, Ultimately, there are record... Uh, low number of police officers, and will this drive efficiencies in how my officers respond to gunfire? So we'll measure it. We'll sit back in a year to evaluate it. And ultimately, as well, the community will be an arbiter in this matter as well. They'll say, did I in any way feel as though my rights were infringed upon? Or do I feel, conversely, that we're responding very effectively and getting good intel as a result of this, this technology? Okay, so those are some of the reactions to arguments around this uh, surveillance technology. Jody Ann, are you, you heard some people saying this doesn't work well enough. Is that your big concern? No, honestly, when it comes to technology, my primary concern isn't accuracy at all. I think we need to take a step back and consider whether we want it used, period. So even if ShotSpotter was 100% accurate, do we want to live in a county that has this level of surveillance, right, that is using this technology without adequate research and testing in other places? Like, this is not 
first here, period. Like there is information out there about its effectiveness, right? And so for me, I think, you know, when we get really excited about technology's potential, you know, as users, as consumers, as the public, you know, technology is always like the new exciting thing. And I think we over-index for the positive impacts of it, yes. But I think we have enough information about the police around fidelity of use, Right. And technology. And so maybe this is the intentions for violent crimes. But what is actually going to happen in people's lived experience with the consequences of this? And so all of the things that, you know, people are concerned about abuse, racial discrimination, data privacy, you know, the police are are notoriously bad at at this period. (laughs) So, you know, I'm just like, I'm just very apprehensive and weary about the use of the technology, you know, despite Bruce Harrell's, you know, insistence that he himself is this vanguard in trying to protect these communities. You're an individual in the system that is notoriously bad at this. And so, you know, that's just a little bit of air for me. Others? Well, I think, you know, Bruce Harrell has been trying to uh, implement this and his deputy mayor, Tim Burgess, has been trying to implement this for more than a decade. Um, It is very much not a new technology. And I do think that, you know, I mean, leaving aside the sort of idea that we should live in the panopticon, um, you know, of surveillance, you know, to agree with Jody, I mean, that that itself should be enough reason to question this. But in addition, we have tons of data showing that, these systems do not work, are not effective at the things that they even purport to do. And, you know, and I think, you know, that quote from the mayor um, is a pretty good example. I mean, he talks a lot about being from here. And, you know, I live in 98118. Well, let's be clear. I mean, he lives in Seward Park. He does not live in a community that's going to be impacted by this. And I think weaponizing communities by saying, you know, the entirety of, you know, 98114 and 98118, the Central District and Rainier Valley, agree that this is a good thing. But he um, says he just, talks with the leaders. I mean, there's not going to be unanimity. Well, he says he's in Sure, but I don't, I, I think that the, I guess my my point is that the, um, when, when Bruce Harrell talks about leaders of communities, he means a very specific group of people that, you know, that tend to support him on his policy goals. And that is, that is who he, you know, he refers to as leaders. There are other leaders of communities that are objecting very strongly to what Harold wants to do with this um, camera and uh, an audio surveillance system. So, I mean, I think that you have to take that with a little grain of salt when whenever the mayor says that the community agrees with me. John. Well, I think Jody Ann and Erica both gave a really good summation why people don't like a system like this. They don't trust it. Uh, But here's how we know it probably does work. Uh, The city of Chicago, uh, they've got a new mayor, and uh, Brandon Johnson is as progressive as Shama Sawant, Tammy Morales. You know, he's cut from that kind of cloth. That's how he sees the world. And he just announced a few days ago that he was going to suspend and cancel uh, the city's contract uh, with this technology. Uh, He says that ShotSpotter, as we've been hearing already this morning, is discriminatory and often is flawed. He said, so I'm going to cancel this technology in September. why in September? Well, because Chicago's going to host the Democratic National Convention, and Chicago's got a long, hot summer ahead of us, and we know how violent Chicago can get uh, in the summertime. So, he Is this want- your theory or his theory? <laughs> it's, it's what the numbers have been saying, and I used to live in Illinois in Chicago area. Uh, so Johnson wants to get rid of it, but not yet. You know, not when we're anticipating that we're probably going to have a whole lot of shots fired and it would be nice to know where they're fired from. Uh, that, to me, told me everything. It, what's so you don't believe him when he says we've found that this doesn't tell us where shots are coming from. You don't believe him. Well, if, if that were true, then why pursue the technology and, and why accumulate the baggage of criticism that comes with doing something that is admittedly controversial because it gets into surveillance. Mm -hmm. It's not just controversial, it's ineffective, right? And so 
I love the conspiracy theory around this, but <laughs> you like, do appreciate that. I do, you know, thumbs up on that. But like, bureaucracies are slow, so it wasn't particularly alarming to me to hear you say that they're going to delay it until September. Like these things take forever to to implement and also to undo. And so I really do appreciate that you brought in Chicago to the discussion because, you know, what say you about the 13-year-old boy, Adam Toledo, who was gunned down by police? And why was he gunned down by police? Because the shot spotter system deployed the police officer's area and pursued him. There's video that shows that his hands were in the air when he was shot. And so... I don't know where you're getting the information about this being effective. This is not summative work that Eric and I are talking about here. These are lived experiences of people on the ground every single day that have to face the consequences of rushed technology that's surveilling black and brown communities. Well, uh, just just to clarify, uh, Johnson doesn't have a contract with shot spotter through September. He just said that he's going to cancel doing business with shot spotter after September. Now, the the response from the company is, well, if that's how you feel, we'll just shut it down right now. And so now there's a big controversy in the city about what are we going to do? Is the city council going to insist that the mayor do what he can to to uh, keep it and I mean, who knows where it's going mm-hmm. but i just find it so revealing that the progressive black mayor of chicago who presumably cares a lot about communities of color wants to shut the system down but he doesn't want to shut it down uh until the convention has left town and labor day is upon us okay well and we'll find out uh looks like if the if the city goes ahead with it we'll find out how it works in seattle erica any final words on shot spotter before we move on yeah just to bring it this sort of tie chicago and seattle together i mean chicago has spent 49 million dollars on this technology since it was implemented in 2018 and Seattle right now is facing a budget deficit of more than $220 million. The city knew this last year. And yet, at a time when, you know, they were saying, let's not do any new programs that we can't sustain, they went out of their way to fund ShotSpotter. And, uh, you know, and so there's now this ongoing obliga- obligation that I think the city really can ill afford. Um, and so, you know, even even leaving aside all the evidence that it doesn't work, that it's been rejected by other cities um, that, you know, just and kept uh, by just, some cities, it's not universally rejected. Right. Other cities. Yes. yes. Um, and uh, leaving aside all that, we're talking about an ongoing obligation that the city really can't afford in the long term. OK, so it seems of, like a wasteful expense to me. Yeah. Erica, you're you're covering the new city council here. And uh, I noticed that because uh, here's another approach to policing would be let cops be cops. Uh, the new Seattle City Council's Public Safety Committee held its first meeting this week. And what did you learn? Well, I mean, all the uh, the the tone uh, of the the entire tone of the public safety committee definitely shifted. Um, they had presentations from all three of the public safety uh, bodies, so fire, police, and the new care department, the nine one one team, um, essentially. And um, what uh, you know, what the new council members had to say, along with Council President Sarah Nelson, who's been there for a couple years, was. You know, we are uh, here to praise you, not criticize you. You're going to hear a whole different attitude and we're going to get out of the way and let you be police. Um, The previous council was too meddling. They used that word uh, repeatedly heard the word, um, you know, uh, uh, permissiveness. Um, And, you know, there was definitely, you know, a sense among this new committee that uh, that you know, they were not going to be um, questioning a lot of things the cops did. Now, I will say I covered the old committee um, and the chair was Lisa Herbold, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of who they were speaking to in a way. And, you know, the only thing I could see that was, you know, I I guess could be considered meddling was that she would repeatedly ask, you know, police to come back and say, hey, um, with this, these massive amounts of money you gave us, here is what we did. Um, here's what we're spending on overtime. Here's, you know, uh, crime rates. Here's, you know, all kinds of reports that, you know, they have to actually have some accountability. Police don't answer to the council. So there's only so much the council can do to sort of make the city a war, warm and fuzzy place for police. But um, 
they do have some accountability roles. And it sounds to me so far like they're going to largely abdicate um, a lot of the stuff that uh, they have been doing on accountability. Okay. Erica says there's only so much meddling the city council could do anyway. So here's a very interesting challenge that the city has. And and I'd, I'd love for us all around the table, the virtual table and the literal table here since uh, Erica's uh, joining us from, from off-site. Uh, how do you deal with the fact that we're way down on police officers? The city has the best pay and benefits of any police department in the state of Washington, and they still can't hire the cops. People still aren't joining the police force. What would you do to encourage more men and women to join the Seattle police force when we are down by such a significant, a record number of officers? We have great pay and benefits, but we can't seem to get them to join. Well, I think just quickly that, you know, the city has a real problem and probably all cities do with seeing systemic problems and our systemic issues um, as systemic. And so we say, what can we do individually? Maybe we can bump those, you know, those bonuses up to 25,000, which we're offering lateral officers. Maybe we can, you know, go out on roll calls and praise the police to the skies. Um, And the fact is that this is a national, a national nationwide problem and or issue, uh, I, I think some people would not define it as a problem, but, you know, an, an issue in every single city, no matter what their policies toward the police, no matter how friendly, um, you know, their city councils and mayors are to police, people are not um, signing up for these jobs. And so for Seattle to look at it as an individual issue, which it does, I mean, the council president, Sarah Nelson, said just the other day, I don't care what other cities are experiencing um, you know, to look at it as this is just Seattle existing in a silo and a bubble outside the rest of the nation is ludicrous. I mean, you there's there's no single action that Seattle can do that's going to change the fact that people do not want to go into uh, policing as a career across the country. Jody Ann, I think I saw you yeah. smile when Erica <laughs> questioned whether this is an, prob- an issue or a problem. Yeah, I mean, I I I love that emphasis and that distinction. Like we are talking about the issues of police staffing, but is that necessarily a problem? Right? I'm very pro reduce police, right? I don't enjoy police interactions. I don't hear a lot of great news about how police, you know, treat its citizens, particularly, you know, people who are the most vulnerable. Um, I don't... Well, the most vulnerable would be victims of crime. I mean, those... The the term victim and the term crime has so many different definitions. And so to even engage in a conversation about that, I think, is a bit in bad faith because okay, there are so a lot somebody... of people who are victims uh-huh. and there are a lot of people who, are cri- who um, have crimes committed against them, but who thinks... What is a crime? And so what I find is really interesting in this permissive environment context is that we're talking about graffiti mediation, that graffiti is this kind of (laughs) broken windows policy, which we know doesn't work, right? That there's some criminal elements, right, in particular neighborhoods. And so I I can't even engage on the whole, like, victim and crime thing at all. Okay, well, here, let's make it more concrete. Somebody hits you over the head and takes your backpack. They're a criminal and you're a victim. Or do you see it differently? I don't know what the purpose of that line of questioning is. I think the question is, if someone... Because you said it's a blurry. You don't get it. So I'm trying to get to where... I didn't say that I didn't get it. I said that there are a lot of definitions and that the vagueness of that definition can be used... No matter what you believe. That's why I used a concrete example. I'm let, so I will respond with that concrete example. So I'm walking down the street. Someone comes over and hits me up the side of the head with a backpack. No, to take your backpack. So sure. hits you over the head and takes sure. your backpack. Hits me over the head. Yes, let's go really, really granular on the details. Somebody comes over to me, hits me, and takes my backpack. What is the police going to do for me? Exactly what? What is the police going to do for me? I have, a, I have a real concrete example that happened backpack? to me. <laughs> probably not. 
probably I, not. Yeah. I've had, go ahead, Erica. <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean, I literally like, ahead, had Erica. somebody attack me, take my laptop bag, steal my laptop. What did I do? Of course, I ran after him. Did not work. Police <laughs> came. They made me, you know, like, and, and you know, a white woman sitting, you know, uh, in, uh, you know, in tears in the police car. They made me feel like I was a criminal <laughs> exactly. and and did absolutely nothing. What do you this mean? Is, you How know, did they make you feel you were a criminal? They put me in the back of the car. They kept questioning why I was crying so hard. They kept questioning, you know, whether this really happened the way that I said it did. And ultimately, um, I did not get my laptop back. I don't believe it was ever investigated. I found out a little bit about like where laptops end up because I'm a reporter and I was just curious if I could find it somehow. Um, but the police, I mean, ultimately, like, it, you know, I'm, I'm, this is an indictment, you know, maybe of individual police officers who were having a bad day. You know, I, I have a small sample size, but I also know that, you know, police do not tend to solve crimes like that. Exactly. Um, and, and in fact, like I wish to this day that I had never called them. It was, it made me so much more traumatized from the whole experience um, that I, uh, you know, it was, it just felt very pointless. So in that specific circumstance, yeah. I, and I wasn't thinking, oh my God, that guy's a criminal who needs exactly. to be locked up. I was thinking I want my backpack back. That would be really nice. Cause I don't want to have to buy another computer that I can't afford. And like okay. that was my thought process. In and, that. and to be quite honest, um, let's just say in this scenario, the police are called, the police catch the person who stole my backpack. Do I want that person arrested? No, I don't. I don't. I'm nodding along because I, I agree with you. <laughs> okay. I want my backpack back. So we have diverging ideas of, yes. of, of how that should go down and whether police are to be trusted. And that would be uh, it would be entire show. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and more and more. Um, I want before we take a break here, uh, I want to ask your thoughts about this. Um, these survey, you know, the, the police department, you mentioned, John, that the police department would like to have more officers. Mm -hmm. They also would like to particularly have more women as officers. They have a, a stated goal, 30 percent of their recruit classes being women by the year 2030. That's not far from now. And a series of interviews of women working at SPD. Didn't sound encouraging. This is KUOW's Isolde Raftery giving us some examples of how some female officers said they've been treated. This night shift crew of male cops would go to breakfast every morning at 5 a.m. at the end of their shift. And one person had to be out on patrol while they all went to breakfast. And it was always the woman. Sure. And the quote was, well, she was out there babysitting the city. And and it just was like, yeah, that resonates like that sucks. And that's not even, you know, a lot of it is is much worse. You know, women who are saying, well, I I'd like to be promoted and they're being offered a promotion, but they can't take the promotion because it involves being on patrol or overseeing a certain patrol crew um, at night. And they have a kid at home, so they can't do that because no one will be home to take care of the kids. So a lot of what they perceive as child care, you know, related discrimination. But overall, I mean, it's just more that they feel like outsiders, like they don't feel they can sit in a certain place to eat lunch. And a lot of these people are promoted through their their very close social networks. So you see, you know, who gets promoted to be assistant chief. It's like tends to be who they were friends with back in the day when they were on patrol. Those repercussions are real. And what does the Seattle Police Department say about these accounts? Well, they are saying, like, aren't we so great? We're so transparent. We're putting this report out. They put out a YouTube video um, in which one woman said, hey, you know, things used to be a lot worse and SPD's been trying to make it a better place. Um, and I, by the way, I believe that. I believe it's a lot better now than it was. But I also believe it used to be terrible. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know where things are at. And they're saying they're taking this very seriously. Okay, John, I have yet to start with you on a topic. Mm -hmm. So what's your reaction? I, uh, a couple of things, because I found this very interesting. Uh, they said that they didn't investigate any of the cl claims, the anecdotes yeah, that These they are received. excerpts from interviews, anonymous but, interviews. Yeah, but I would love to know whether the women in the Seattle Police Department feel that way. I'd love to know whether polls show that what came out of this report actually is emblematic of how women feel. Because in a police department where we've had two 
female police chiefs in the last eight years, uh, something's not adding up. And so I would Just like to— Just because there have been women as police chiefs or for some other reason? Well, women as police chiefs and women in the police high command and hierarchy. So something isn't working, and I'd love Press to know— Press the allow button to verify you're human. <laughs> I don't know what that <laughs> was. Which one of us was he talking to on that Verify one? Verify that you're human. Wow. <laughs> I, love, I love that commentary, actually. <laughs> okay, finish, finish so, your thought, John, and we'll so, hear from other humans. Yeah, so I, I love to, uh, to get an idea of whether this is how the majority or even a significant minority of female police officers feel, because if so, uh, then they've got a deep hole to dig out of. Yeah, we don't have numbers of how many people were were interviewed. It was about 12. Um, It was a small report, but there's a lot of other evidence besides just this one report. Um, And I I would say that a poll, um, you know, police department is never going to do a poll, most likely. (laughs) Uh, But second, I mean, I don't know that a poll by the police department of current officers about, you know, how they feel um, would be uh, a counteractive to this, uh, this report, which was not about people's feelings. It was about women's experiences and things that had happened to them. Um, And those experiences uh, very much comport with, you know, reporting that I've done over the years, you know, talking to both male and female officers about what it is like experientially, not feelings, um, working in the department for women. Um, I think that it is just... um, it, there is there is no counterfactual that SPD is a great place for women, um, and there are many counterfactual. There are many factual uh, bits of factual evidence that it is uh, it is in fact um, a place where there is quite a bit of gender discrimination. And the stuff that was described just in this survey, the focus groups that were done, um, were things that constituted sexual harassment, um, that constituted legal, you know, gender discrimination under the law. And so um, I don't think we're talking about people feeling bad. I think we're talking about laws and rules being violated in such a way that there are very, very few women at the police department. And so um, I just I would I would sort of disagree with the framing that this is women. You know, if you if we did a poll about how women feel, it would show that they feel good. Um, these are these are very disturbing uh, anecdotes. And to, I want to hear from Jody and to make it clear that I don't think these were harassment or discrimination claims that have been investigated these were right they were just describing experiences jody i would just encourage folks listening to this or watching this on youtube right now to take a look at this report i want you to just kind of blank out anytime there's spd or officers in that document I want you to read the actual accounts of women's experiences and i promise you women in any industry at any company is facing these exact same things, right? And so to me, that it's a cultural issue. And I think this is probably the second time in this conversation that the leadership's identity, right? Like we've had women in leadership. We've had black people in leadership. You know, this p- cultural historic problem is not solved with gender discrimination. You know, I think it just fundamentally misunderstands the culture of these environments. And so for me personally, I like vehemently <laughs> abhor any type of discrimination in any profession. It is unlawful, right? I think that people should be able to have a job and career where they have access to opportunities and that job is free of harassment and bullying and discrimination. At the same time, I don't want to be pulled into a representation argument, right? Like I don't want to over-index on we need more women and that's going to um, help things. We need demographic parity within the workforce. I want to see less police, period. And so if Wouldn't we, we be better if, off having less crime so we need less police? I'm going to finish my point. Um, okay. So I think we need to see less police, right? And if that decline happens, that a lot of the policies are changed and people don't want to be a part of that culture anymore or that people are terminated, then like that's great for me. Right. I want to see childcare options. I want to see mentorship. I want to see people being held accountable for the experiences that these women are facing within their workplace and also an overall decline of police. OK, we're, we're about to take a break. Uh, do we cover it for now? Yeah, no, I think so. We've okay. covered several topics in a remarkably short period of time. 
Oh, if only we had more time, John. <laughs> You're going to find out. We're going to be up against it at the end of the show, as we always are, yeah. on Weekend Review, because we have so much to say, and we're going to be right back after a short break. You're listening to Week in Review. You're watching it if you're um, on YouTube and searching KOW Public Radio. Otherwise, you're listening to KVI's John Carlson, speaker and author of the forthcoming book, Authentic. Jody Ann Bury, Public Cola's Erica Barnett is here, and I'm Bill Radke. We're covering some of the news of the week. What about the children? <laughs> New census data shows King County's under-18 population dropped the last couple of years after rising for decades. It fell by more than 20,000 youngsters. Um, first of all, I'm always curious, Do is this, Jody Ann, is, does this seem like good news, bad news, neutral news? And then we'll get into why it might be. You know, I don't have children. I've been an aunt since I was 13 years old, mm-hmm. so I feel like I've seen every life stage. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, I'm thumbs up on the child-free life. I'm thumbs up on the kid decline. Uh, life is hard. Life is expensive. Kids are expensive. And I'm really excited for this conversation of, like, how hospitable is Seattle to families. Yeah. John, any valence on this? Do you care whether there are fewer or more kids oh, yeah. in King County? I think a city with lots of children has a future. It's kind of like a church. When you see children in church, the church has a future. If you don't see any kids, <laughs> it's yeah. usually, you know, not doing quite so well. The The concern um, about this is, you know, what's driving it? Yeah. What's driving the trend? Yeah. I think a lot if of If it, it's a trend. This was one blip in an otherwise <clears throat> steady increase of kids. But we'll see if it's a trend. Yeah. Could be. Um, the, but the... The growth trend had been slowing, mm-hmm. and now it's reducing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by by trend. Got it. And I think money's driving a lot of it. It's you know, Jody Ann's right. It's expensive to live around here. Uh, the other part of it is it's a lot more dangerous to be a kid around here. When I was eight years old, uh, my mom and dad had parted company, so I grew up with mom in West Seattle. Dad lived in Ballard. When I was eight years old, on Saturdays, I'd jump on the number 18 Fauntleroy bus at California and Alaska, which went down Avalon Way, then, then Soto, down First Avenue, all the way, you know, down Inner Bay, across the Ballard Bridge, and dropped me off on Northeast 24th. I was eight. My mom and dad didn't think twice about it, and neither did I. How many parents would put their eight-year-old son or daughter on a bus and go all the way across town alone. Yeah. I might have hesitated when mine were eight. Erica, do you have any reaction to this? I mean, I, I don't have kids either. Um, so also all about that child-free lifestyle. <laughs> um, but um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, John, I, I have to say, like, I've heard the same sort of nostalgia from, you know, for, for the days of your, for my entire, you know, life, basically, you know, certainly my adult life. And, you know, I mean, definitely like things have changed. Things have changed in Issaquah. Things have changed um, in, you know, uh, the suburbs of Phoenix. I don't know, pick your place where mm-hmm. I'm from. Um, I don't think that that's evidence that it's dangerous to be a child in Seattle or in or around Seattle. I think, you know, you know, the, the, the fact that it is so expensive um, could definitely be a, you know, a, a factor here. And the, uh, the data in the report didn't sort of say why there were fewer children, for example, if people are moving to the suburbs because it's so expensive in Seattle, you know, going to Brenton, going to Burien. And I would be interested in seeing that information. Um, that is, to me, the, the, you know, the potential sort of uh, related negative aspect. Um, but I also think, you know, people are having fewer kids because, you know, for a lot of good reasons, women have more opportunities. Um and it is, you know, uh, birth control is universal um, as it, you know, perhaps was not in your childhood or mine, John. Um, and uh, my you parents know, and had also... nine kids. So I think I think birth <laughs> control existed, but it was more of a theory. In my yeah. Family. Yeah. But uh, well, I'm an only child, too. So mm-hmm. um, but I think um, I think, you know, there are also bad reasons that are like society wide that people are having fewer children. Um, one is, you know, the fact that we don't have a maternal health care. We don't have time off for parents. Um, we have a very, uh, you know, we have a decaying health care system. Most people um, 
you know, would probably not be satisfied and thrilled with the quality of their health care. We don't support parents. I mean, just look at the SPD report with women saying, you know, that that people uh, that they worked with, men they worked with, uh, made jokes about, um, you know, getting rid of people when they went on maternity leave. So, I mean, there's a whole host of factors that, you know, would make someone uh, decide not to have children or not to have as many children that, you know, I think are are worth looking at. But in and of itself, I don't think it's, you know, positive uh, or negative. It's it's just a, a neutral fact for now. I'll toss out a few other reasons I've heard, react or don't, and then and then we'll move on. But uh, I've heard climate change, the, uh, the, the, the do I want to bring my children into this world? Although I have heard that my entire life, yeah. whether it's right, <laughs> it's nuclear, you know, Russia and America have oh, nuclear yeah. weapons pointed at each other or acid rain or overpopulation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we've been there before. OK, um, then there's the fact that people's home, your home is busier and more fun than ever. You're streaming <laughs> shows on a big TV. You got TikTok on your phone. You you could be busy because you're working at home on a laptop. People, there's not such a work you know, uh, home divide. You never come home to a quiet, boring place. Is there, could there be something to that? I mean, I think the flip of that is, and maybe it's related to this, but Seattle's a very lonely city. You know, I think, I mean, I have a dog. It took me three years to develop relationships tight enough to leave my dog with my neighbors, right? Like, I could not imagine um, what, like, community care and collective care looks like for a child. And so I think with, like, you know, there are a lot of more interesting things to do. People are, are home more. Maybe there's a larger trend of what does it mean to be a part of a community? What does it mean to create a village? And so for my contemporaries who've come to Seattle as single people, um, they partner, they decide to have children, and it's really tough to have a family in Seattle. Even if they have these great tech jobs and they have the finances, they just do not have the community. And so I'm, I'm curious, again, of how many people are just leaving because they can't sustain that type of village, you know, culture in the city. And to be honest, I think public transit is also related to that, you know. I think that Seattle is an easier town to be single in than, uh, than to have a family. I mean, acts of single people, like, it's not easy to be single in Seattle, but maybe for other reasons. Well, it, <laughs> it's it's one or the other. You're, <laughs> you're single or you're not. Um, I don't know. But, but, but I've, uh, I mean, I love being in Seattle when I was single, but so many people, uh, when they decide to settle down and have kids and they need more space and they need a bigger house, uh, they start thinking about value. They start thinking about what can we afford and is it worth staying here and paying extra? How are the schools? Um, Especially if it, you can work from home, is which it is clean? a relatively new thing. Is it you, safe? And, yeah, the whole yeah. work from home, that's a whole new cultural phenomenon. And I think we're just just stepping into that world. Let's talk about something to, uh, to uh, keep the kids out of danger. We have this in Washington State, a child endangerment law that makes it a crime to leave methamphetamine around so that a child poisons themselves. And the state Senate voted overwhelmingly to add fentanyl to that law. But the Democratic chair of the House Safety and Justice Committee says his colleagues do not want to criminalize parents. Quote, the war on drugs has clearly failed. Substance use disorders are at the root of this, and people are not going to stop because they're addicted. The criminal penalty only makes it worse for everyone. Any reaction? Yeah, so well, oh, oh, go ahead, Erica. Well, I, I wrote a book on addiction um, and have experienced it myself. Um, and I, you know, would just say to, you know, completely agree with that that statement that, um, you know, we have tried incarceration it, and it absolutely did not work. And, you know, people who get sober in jail and have it, you know, quote unquote, stick um, are the exception, and they do so in spite of the circumstances inside jails. And so the very theory behind this is is really flawed um, from the beginning. And then, of course, you're talking about children. Um, I don't see how children are made safer by being thrust into, you know, the very uh, dangerous and, uh, you know, and, and not, um, you know, a foster care system, which has mostly negative outcomes. So, Taking people's kids away um, is not a path towards making those kids safer, nor is it um, a path towards sort of healing families and, you know, helping people find recovery. 
So, Erica, would you repeal the existing law that says if you are reckless or even mendacious and your child gets into meth and is severely injured or dies, that you would not hold the parent legally responsible for that? Well, I think there are different ways to hold people legally responsible. I think jail is not the appropriate one for people with addiction. Um, I think addiction is incredibly hard to treat, um, but we do have some evidence for what works and evidence for what does not work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if if the, the legal solution is putting people in jail and taking their kids away and putting them, you know, either with family or more likely to foster care, then yes, I would definitely repeal that. I don't think that that is an effective approach to, you know, to help people with addiction nor their children. Before we hear from Jody Ann, just briefly, what's the legal approach that you would support, Erica? Well, I mean, I'm not a lawmaker, so you're putting me on the spot a little bit, but I do think that, you know, there are um, there are approaches to recovery that are not punitive. Um, but with opiates, fentanyl, um, we actually have very effective um, medical approaches with Suboxone, with methadone, which should be more widely available and which people should be able to take home. Um, that, you know, start people towards ending their addiction. Um, And I think we should definitely expand access to those approaches over the punitive approach of putting someone in jail, where, by the way, there are drugs available. Okay, a medical approach. Correct. Yeah, you know, when I read the Seattle Times article on this, um, it starts with the story about that two-year-old girl who had ingested fentanyl and had to go to hospital, and thankfully she I think they said that she was stabilized. And so that whole situation is so terrible, right? But to Erica's point, I think you're raising really fantastic points here. I really don't know how having her father spend two months in jail was going to protect her. And what I found interesting about that article, too, is that there was not a single mention of what happened to that little girl. Right. Who stayed? Who does she stay with? Who took care of her for those two months? Where is she now? And so I just don't know how incarceration is related to protecting children. And I really am wary of the ways that, quote unquote, protecting children is leveraged to make urgent, empirically unsound decisions about criminalizing drug use. So, John, do you want to expand it to alcohol? If my kids get into my uh, liquor cabinet, should that be a felony if, get, if they get sick? No, because I don't think one drink is going to... Well, I don't know how much they're they going to drink. Drunk. <laughs> but uh, we are talking about poison, okay? We're, we're, we're talking about an illegal substance that parents are... Well, alcohol is not legal for my kid. Yeah, but we're talking about... And, 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 Fentanyl and, and meth are legal for anybody. I think it's poison. There's okay. a lot of poison in your house. That's fine. So and and so, the idea that and, and you said, we know, what standard is it that makes this justifiable? The word is deterrence. That addicts need to know that if they endanger their children by being, as I said, reckless or even mendacious. Uh, and their children suffer, then they will face legal consequences. They definitely should lose their kid. I mean, the idea that that you would have parents um, introducing their kids to that kind of lifestyle and, again, being so lackadaisical that a child could die because the parent is is endangering them with an illegal substance that they know can kill the kid. Well, John, I mean, you know, it, as, as Bill noted, uh, alcohol is also illegal for kids. And I, you know, and I can, I can speak to both alcohol and drugs just um, on a, in a general way okay. about um, th- this idea of deterrence. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to um, any kind of recovery meeting um, as a, as an observer or whatever, but uh, but let me tell you, uh, saying that you're going to take people's kids away does not deter them from having the medical condition of addiction of which a symptom is using the substance they're addicted to. Um, it doesn't work. Um, people have their kids taken away all the time and keep using. People risk, you know, that people are in situations where their kids, you know, are about to get taken away and they keep exhibiting the symptoms of addiction. So what's the um, downside? It is unbelievable. Then? then what's if it? You say it the downside work. What's is the downside, the downside is taking people's children away 
um, is a civil liberties issue. It's, uh, you know, it, it is a, a harm to the parent, but it is also a harm to the child to put them into a foster care system where they are unlikely to graduate. They are extremely likely, likely to become addicted themselves. They are unlikely to have, you know, educational, economic attainment. I mean, the, there's the, the outcomes of foster care uh, and the negative outcomes are very well documented and well known. So that's that's a downside that I would think most people could sort of look at and say, OK, well, I don't even if I don't care about the person who is addicted to drugs or alcohol, um, I, I do care about that child. And I mean, you, it, there's empirical evidence that putting children, taking children away from parents, usually mothers and putting them in foster care is not a good solution for those children. Well, it might mean having the child move to a relative's home, you know, with a, with an extended family member. But the idea that the law should not protect children who are endangered by illegal and lethal drugs, to me, is just madness. Yeah, I don't I don't think taking children away from their parents in most cases ends up protecting those children. It um, does I from think them. That, that is... That is a that is a, a sort of magical thinking that doesn't you know have evidence from the real world of what actually happens to those children, um, and so I I would just dispute that you know that, that you're basing that on evidence other than you know, the sort of sense that yanking a kid out of their household and putting them in you know in a series of strangers' households because you know addiction is also a family disease. It's not always the case that there is you know a, a welcoming, wealthy, you know uh, capable. Uh, network of relatives who are able to take on that child. I mean, that is that is a that is a lovely thought, but it doesn't play out um, as often as you might imagine in practice. Okay, well, the state senate uh, went for this expansion from methamphetamine to fentanyl. Uh, overwhelmingly, the state house. We don't know, but that's that was the head of the uh, safety and justice. Uh, well, that was Roger thing. Goodman. He's he's going to yeah. bottle up the bill because that's he he's just on the other side. But it sailed through the Senate forty eight to one. Yeah. Okay, we'll follow that. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll follow some more of the news of the week. And because it's. It, it's almost the end of the show. See, I told you this would happen. And we got to leave. I get some- three hours in the morning. <laughs> we'll be right back. KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I'm not alone. I've got a panel here of speaker, author Jody Ann Bury, KVI's John Carlson, Publicola's Erica Barnett. And we're close to the end of the show. Let me just mention a few things that happened this week. We won't have time to. Uh, really pull apart, but just quickly, Renton voters uh, are approving a minimum wage increase to about 19 bucks an hour. That's over the state minimum, $16 or so. Uh, ballots are still being counted in Renton, but it's, it's, it's passing. Um, at Seattle-based Alaska Airlines, flight attendants voted overwhelmingly in favor of a potential strike. They want to get paid for the whole time they're on duty, not just based on mileage flown. The union president said, if we're heroes when a door plug blows out, then pay us like heroes, or at least pay us a Seattle living wage. No no strike yet, but it's possible next month. State DUI limit stays at .08 blood alcohol concentration. Some lawmakers wanted it to join Utah and lower it to .05. A limit on rent increases is still alive. Last I checked, landlords could raise rents no more than 7% a year, and late fees would be restricted, but we'll see how that plays out. And uh, also still alive a bill to ban open carry of firearms in parks bus stations libraries zoos aquariums local government buildings is still alive in olympia and gun owners required to report the loss or theft of a firearm to law enforcement within 24 hours of discovering their weapon is gone i think that's still alive and uh, finally washington state keeps its property tax limit where it is no more than a one percent increase per year some lawmakers wanted well, they wanted local control local governments could raise them up to three percent without voter approval but john republicans kept it a statewide law one size fits all good for them okay <laughs> Now, some King County leaders say this is going to mean big budget cuts, but they can raise taxes more if the voters approve it, right? That's right. For specific purposes, not the general Mm -hmm. fund. Yeah, and keep in mind, this bill would not only have allowed the county to raise your property taxes 3% a year, but also the city to raise your property taxes 3% a year. I mean, they get a take, too. So every jurisdiction that gets anything from property taxes could— raise the, that tax 3% automatically without a vote of the people. So this would think about 
multiple jurisdictions doing that and then compounding it year by year, 3% plus 3% plus 3%. Okay. Gets pricey. I mean, let's let's three percent. That's not three percent of your property value. It's you know the effective tax rate increase. That's right. Yeah, in King County is is around you know a little under one percent right now, and so that would be three percent instead of you know of of that one percent. We we have a very low uh, property. I know I know people don't like to hear this, but the property tax rate in King County um, and Washington State is is on the low side compared to places like Texas. Um, you know, much of the Midwest. I mean, it's property taxes are high that people pay because the value of your property that you own is high. And uh, and so I think that's worth keeping in mind um, for a little perspective on this Tim Iman imposed 1% cap. Yeah. And inflation's been at 6% for three Actually, years. Actually, I think the voters that. imposed that, uh, Erica. Yeah. Well, Tim Iman just gave <laughs> I don't the think chance. Iman imposed. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Okay, we're, we got a minute left, and I always like to give somebody something to smile about. Um, anybody have uh, something that made you smile this week that our listeners could appreciate? You know, I do. You know, earlier this year, I met this, like, random person at an art gallery, and last night we sat and, like, had tea. And it's just, like, kind of wild to me to just, like, meet a rando out in the wild. Uh (laughs) Like, I have no context of who they are. I don't know anything about their social media. And to just sit and have a conversation. And so I think, you know, people just don't hang out as much. And it was just really nice to have a pretty low-stakes conversation over some peppermint tea. Well, I'd like to think we're doing that right now. We got forty <laughs> seconds left. Anybody else? What a great smile. story! Yes, that thank was wonderful. You. Thank you, Jody. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Uh, yes, uh, I love when ordinary people do extraordinary things and change our lives for the better. That is what William Post, who, who died at the age of ninety-six this past week, did uh-huh. in the prime of his life. He helped invent. The, the Pop-Tart. Pop-Tart. <laughs> uh, unfrosted brown sugar cinnamon. Thank you for that smile. Erica, anything else? I can do mine in five seconds. Okay. Uh, listen to the new WNYC po- uh, podcast, Blind Spot, which is about stories from the AIDS epidemic that have not been told. It's great. Beautiful. Blind Spot. Public Cola co-founder, publisher Erica Barnett. Author of the forthcoming book, Authentic, speaker Jody Ann Bury, KVI radio host John Carlson. Thank you for having virtual tea with me and just <laughs> chatting and hanging out. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank Thanks. you, producer Kevin Kniestet. Thank you, Bernard Willette, running the board. I'm Bill Radke. And thank you for joining us again a week from now for Week in Review. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.